The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 27th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Steven Seagal was talking to Piers Morgan on my version of Celebrity Has Been Mad Libs. No, actually, it was on a TV show called Good Morning Britain. And Seagal was asked to opine about the patriotism of American football players who took a knee during the national anthem. I don't agree that they should hold the United States of America or the world hostage by taking a venue uh, where people are tuning in to watch a football game and, you know, imposing their political views. I think it's outrageous. I think it's a joke. It's disgusting. Whoa, boy, because we know when someone is being held hostage, Steven Seagal is the man to call. You might know him as ex-cop Mason Storm or oil fire specialist Forrest Taft, or under sieges Casey Ryback. Wait, I thought Ryback was just the cook. Ryback is an ex-seal. Expert in martial arts. Explosives. Stand fast! Weapons and tactics. I also cook. And Seagal has now added to his list of impressive weaponry, it would seem. He is now also deadly in his extremely accurate pronunciation and praise for the Russian leader. For anyone to think that Vladimir Putin had uh, uh, anything to do with fixing the elections or even that the Russians have that kind of technology is, is stupid. Now, Seagal is to Putin, sorry, Putin, what Dennis Rodman is to Kim Jong-un, although Rodman can still touch his own toes. And that's what bothers me about Steven Seagal. We had a deal with Steven Seagal. It was always so clear who he was. In fact, every single Steven Seagal movie would always announce just who Steven Seagal is, be it a man who is evading an executioner. Steven Seagal is hard to kill. Yup, that is a quality that comes in handy when you find yourself in this place. Steven Seagal is on deadly ground. And in case we were worried it was just the ground and not specifically the occupant of said ground that was in trouble, we've been told... Steven Seagal is marked for death. When I was a young man, there were three immutable rules of entertainment. One, Three's Company was always based on a misunderstanding. Two, Tony Danza always played a character named Tony. And three, Steven Seagal always was what his movie's names were. Now, this is not to be confused with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Steven Seagal was hard to kill. Jean-Claude Van Damme was just hard to understand. But Steven Seagal was out for justice, marked for death, above the law. But now, now what is Steven Seagal? Steven Seagal is spouting nonsense. Steven Seagal is a Russian stooge. Steven Seagal is hard to take. Well, at least that part's been consistent. On the show today, the very, very best thing we could do to help Puerto Ricans, not just after this hurricane, but for all time. But first, it has been a long time, but we've got a segment that we like to hoist up the flagpole and see who salutes. It's Ted Kay with yet another Vexillology Corner.
And now it's time for another Vexillology Corner. And who better to join me? Well, the only guy, the man who is always a permanent fixture in the ve- corner of the Vexillology Corner. It's Ted Kay. He is a professional Vexillologist. He's the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. He is the uh, editor emeritus of The Raven, which is the journal of Vexillology. Am I getting that all right, Ted? Yes. Hey, thanks a lot. The, the, only, the only thing I'd correct is I'm not a professional. Uh, this is uh, strictly an amateur amateur thing that uh, we're just enthusiastic to be able to help advance the field of flag studies. Are there professional vexillologists? You know, since the passing of Whitney Smith, who founded the field, uh, I'm not sure there's anybody who actually wow. makes his money being a flag expert. Did he? Is he the one who invented the word vexillology? Yes, he invented it when he was 17 years old. He put together vexillum from the Latin for flag and ology from the Greek for study of and created the word vexillology for the study of flags. I I love that. So it's a neologism uh, from a man whose uh, most communication is just visual. Let's talk about a famous flag, an infamous flag, a formerly infamous flag. We're talking about Pocatello. Uh, What was that flag like? Pocatello, Idaho adopted a flag in 2001 using the logo of a civic pride campaign that says, proud to be Pocatello on it. Uh, and it's got an image of mountains in purple. And then underneath it says, copyright, greater Pocatello Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> the and copyright on it. <laughs> it has a trademark symbol as well. It's just a bunch of words on it. And uh, it's uh, infamous as being the flag design that was rated the worst in North America when my organization, the North American Vexillological Association, did a survey of American city flags in 2004. It was rated 1.48 on a scale of 0 to 10, dead last. In fact, if you uh, pass it under local barcode readers, you get a 10% discount on seed. <laughs> it looks like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some people commented in the survey, I'd be proud to be from anywhere else. Yeah, the people from right outside Pocatello were feeling good. Yeah, well, bad. somebody else wrote, uh, uh, this flag is a good justification for flag burning. Wow. So... You guys, name it and shame it, how quick is Pocatello to put its arms around the idea that we've got to change this flag? So in early 2015, Roman Mars, the podcast host, did a TED Talk identifying good and bad city flags, and he singled out Pocatello as the one that should be changed most. And the mayor of Pocatello took that to heart, and now, uh, two and a half years later, Day before yesterday, Pocatello raised its new flag. Tell me about the new flag. The new flag has uh, a red mountains, three peaks on it, kind of a sun bursting out behind the mountains that creates a snowy peak on the highest mountain. So it's a red mountains on a blue background with a yellow sun and a white peak, and then a, a, a white line, but through the, the red mountains, and uh, it's quite simple and evocative of the Pocatello area. Well, it absolutely adheres to one of your principles that a child should be able to draw it quite simply. Indeed. The five basic principles of flag design, simplicity, a child should be able to draw it from memory, meaningful symbolism, a flag should have stuff that shows what it represents, two to three colors. This one has four colors, uh, but uh, pretty close. No lettering or seals. That was the big problem with the old flag of Pocatello with all that lettering on it. 
and distinctiveness. No other flag looks like Pocatello's. So it, it fires on all cylinders. Yeah, but here's the thing. And I know that I, I want to welcome them to the world, uh, to the to the world of non totally embarrassing flags. It's nice, but to me, it looks like a painting, or it looks like a picture. There's something about it, and maybe without saying if uh, you like it or don't like it, because I know that you know it, it's getting the job done at least. But there's something about it that says to me it is more a picture and less a flag. Why do I think that? I think because there's some asymmetry in the uh, mountains that most great flags have vertical or horizontal or or both, uh, symmetry on both axes. And that asymmetry of the mountains probably is what's contributing to your sense that there's a bit of a painting or a picture image to it as opposed to ultra flag-like. Still... Uh, I'm looking forward to rerunning an American city flag survey sometime because of all of these cities who had flags that were rated at the bottom that have now redesigned their flags and have flags that probably will float to the top. I'm interested in in the rematch. Who are some of the other ones, uh, some of the bottom dwelling flags, some of the flags you could mop the floor with? Uh, Another one was Montpelier. Montpelier had... uh, it basically looked like a, a banner or a lawn sign or a, a license plate, and now it's it's been replaced with a, a much more uh, evocative flag. And that happened just in the in the last couple months as well. All right. Uh, I know you came back from a big flag conference. What went on there? The International Congress of Vexillology takes place every two years somewhere in the world. And, and last month it was in London, and the Flag Institute in the United Kingdom was the host of that conference, and about 150 flag scholars and enthusiasts from around the world, probably 30 countries, came together to talk about flags, give lectures and share wisdom and enjoy camaraderie as they talked about flags. You know how like uh, there's an American version of words and an English version, a truck is a lorry, but I know that flags speak the language of heraldry. Are there any different words or phrases that the American vexillologist will use from the English vexillologist? Some that we're still discussing are the words tri-bar, tri-band, and tri-color as ways of describing different flags that have three stripes on yeah. them. And we don't quite have... Uh, uh, agreement on what those are. Much more interesting, though, is the translation of vexillological terms from English into other languages, because certain languages have one word for many types of flags, and other languages have a specific word for each type of flag. So the Slavic languages tend to have one word for what we would call a flag or an ensign or a civil ensign, and we tend to differentiate in English. And so those of us who are interested in the words around flags see those differences uh, language to language. When an attendee at this uh, vexillological conference comes from a country with, say, a below average looking flag, I don't know, take Angola with weapons on the flag, let's say, do they have to, do they have to skulk around seeming a little ashamed? <laughs> I think that the flag scholars try to raise themselves up above the the debate about the quality of their their uh, national flag designs. Uh, that said, I would say that most national flag designs are 
pretty good designs in terms of following the principles of flag design. And Angola has gotten some recent press because, of course, it has an AK-47 on it. Some people in Angola think that's great because it represents the revolution that got them their current government. Others think it's kind of an embarrassment to have a a modern-day weapon on a flag when still there are some other countries that have weapons on their flag, spears and and old-fashioned rifles and things. Yeah. Does the Vexillological Conference have its own flag? Yes. Not only do all of the vexillological organizations that come together to hold the meeting of the International Federation of Vexillological Associations, each one of those has flags, but also each event. So the 27th International Congress of Vexillology had a flag for the event as well. Wow. It riffed on the English flag. It, it had uh, two overlapping X's and a V which created XXV for 25, and then two swords from the flag of the City of London, which created two more I's, so XXVII for 27 in Roman numerals, all red on white. This is definitely the kind of flag that a flag geek would get and like, but does it adhere to the five principles? It's a little complex, but uh, (laughs) the idea is there's a single purpose use for that flag, and that's to represent the conference during the conference. And so it's very important to evaluate flags in the context of form follows function, how the flag's going to be used. And so the Basic principles of flag design really apply to flags that are going to be general purpose flying on a flagpole representing a a person, place, or thing in general use. But specific uses, for example, some military uses or, or event uses, might have other criteria that lead to exceptions to those basic principles. All right. uh, The last thing is every day or every other day on Twitter, someone tweets me a new flag that their city or municipality is considering. What do you think? You got to weigh in. They say there's too many to do it for all of them. But have you seen any? I'm sure you get a hundred times as many as I do. Have you seen any that are notable or interesting that you'd like to talk about? One that I found very interesting was the flag adopted by the city of Cedar Park, Texas. They did a big uh, competition, got uh, hundreds of designs proposed to them, and Cedar Park, which, which has its, its history, I think, in uh, cedar posts for barbed wire fences, it adopted a flag that had four white X's on it on a field of light blue and green yeah. uh, with a line connecting those X's, which evoked barbed wire. And they debuted the flag in a great celebration last December, And immediately there was a Facebook backlash against the design and against the fact that the public hadn't voted on it. And the city of Cedar Park took down all the flags that it had had made and were flying all over uh, municipal facilities and sent all of the finalist designs back to the arts, the local arts and parks commission and said, try again. And so they're they're regrouping and may uh, come up with a new flag. Very unusual situation where flags actually adopted by a city and then retracted. Yeah, I'm looking at it online. It reminds me a little of Amsterdam with the X's. Yes, yeah. yes. The, there's there's some very positive aspects about that, but uh, the the people have to feel some ownership in their flag if it's truly going to represent them. Right. All right. Ted Kay is the editor emeritus of The Raven, which, as you know, is the journal of the American Vexillological Association. He joins us for Vexillology Corner. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Mike. I love your energy. Thank you, Ted. Thank you so much. You, you want a flag joke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
What's what's the best thing about being from Switzerland? What? I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. Yeah, the flag's a big plus. That's pretty good. I like it. And now the spiel. Hurricane Maria has left Puerto Rico with about only one-third of its working hospitals, without any of its power, without much of its potable water. As a humanitarian crisis, this is severe. But it's more than just the suffering of our fellow man. We are told here by American media, remember, this is the suffering of our fellow American. The administration, as well as the news media, has been criticized for a slow response to the devastation in Puerto Rico and being more concerned about Florida and Texas. But now the administration is pulling out all the stops to help Puerto Rico. After all, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Now, some of what President Trump says about the difficulty of getting relief to the island territory is actually true. His tweets about Puerto Rico's massive debt and broken infrastructure are bizarrely timed, but those statements are also factually true. Now, this part isn't true. Everybody has said it's amazing the job that we've done in Puerto Rico. Because, as we have documented, when Trump says many people, he means few people. When he says nobody, he means almost everybody. And when he says almost everybody, he means almost nobody. But what is real is the way to help Puerto Rico. So, is it the USS Comfort that will be deployed there? Is it a visit for the president, which he will undertake next week? Is it the full force of FEMA? In the immediate term, the answer is yes to all these questions. And maybe there'll be a telethon and maybe celebrities, Pitbull, Mark Anthony, some MLB players will ask you to give and you should. But there are going to be more hurricanes and more disasters and more destruction. The question is, what will help Puerto Rico the most? The answer is, what will help them the most is what helps almost every country the most, wealth. In 2006, researchers went back to 1990, and they counted 400 recorded earthquakes in 75 countries that rendered 9 million people homeless and 156,000 people dead. And they found that many, if not most of the deaths, were the result of buildings that folded in on themselves. About seven years ago, a big earthquake hit Haiti, 200,000 people died. A few weeks later, a much bigger earthquake hit Chile, and a few hundred people died. Why? Haiti's the poorest country in this hemisphere. Chile is actually the wealthiest country by per capita income in South America. The Japanese tsunami of 2011 left 15,000 people dead. A horror. But the Christmas tsunami of 2004, similar-sized earthquakes, reportedly a smaller wave, actually, in that earthquake off the coast of Indonesia, killed 120,000 people. There are lots of differences between the two countries, the population centers, but a big difference is the number of buildings that collapsed in Indonesia that didn't in Japan. The country that has done the most to save people from natural disasters during my lifetime is China, even though they've had many people killed in natural disasters, but they have raised seven or 800 million people out of poverty since 1981, which is when the World Bank, I think, started counting them. Now, many of these people aren't wealthy, they're not well off, but there is a positive correlation between rising GDP and per capita income, even rising from below poverty to just above the poverty line, a positive correlation between that and disaster survivability. Two researchers, one from the University of Colorado, one from London, 
calculated that 83% of all deaths from building collapses in earthquakes over the last 30 years occurred in countries that are anomalously corrupt. So this is not a value judgment, but when a country is not wealthy, corruption is a way for public officials to make money, and that too makes earthquakes and hurricanes and natural disasters all the more deadly. So today, writing in Bloomberg View, the excellent economist Tyler Cowen pointed out that Hurricane Maria's effects on Puerto Rico shows us how much the Puerto Rico experiment has failed. Meaning, if Puerto Rico were a state, a true state, they would be much richer and much more resilient. I talked to Cowan, and he pointed out that the island territory lags far behind every other U.S. state in key metrics. We've had a long-standing relationship between the mainland United States and Puerto Rico, where Puerto Rico is a commonwealth. It's neither a state nor it's independent. In my piece, I simply point out this relationship already had broken down. In economic terms, Puerto Rico was not doing very well. The island was depopulating. So now with the aftermath of the hurricane, I was simply arguing we need to rethink this whole relationship. My preferred outcome would have been for Puerto Rico to have become a state a long time ago. But of course, they themselves decided against that. So Cowan does favor statehood for Puerto Rico, and he's right when he says that would undoubtedly bring the island more wealth and its people better life outcomes. But for a variety of factors, it won't happen. He knows that. So I put to Cowan my idea, or my observation. I said, yes, it is to America's shame that many of us forget Puerto Ricans are American citizens and that our reactions to what's happening in Puerto Rico is in any way different from our reactions to what's happening in Florida or Houston. But the very fact that Puerto Rico is a territory, even a territory and not a state, has helped it tremendously. I compared Puerto Rico to the Dominican Republic. I wanted to choose a former Spanish colony. I mean, the Dominican Republic has three times the number of people. But 100, 200 years ago, the fate of those two countries diverged. And now Puerto Ricans per capita are twice as wealthy as Dominicans, and that does matter. Here's Tyler Cowan. Well, Puerto Rico is definitely wealthier than the Dominican Republic. But if you look at an island where the government is bankrupt, the population has been declining about 9% over the last decade. Most of that is coming from young people. It seems they're actually headed toward the living standards of the Dominican Republic. And uh, we'd like to avoid that somehow especially with the hurricane. There's maybe now a risk of future hurricanes being more likely given climate change. My ideal outcome, which I don't think is possible actually, would be for an American state in a sense to absorb Puerto Rico and for it to become part of our country. So barring a state fully absorbing Puerto Rico as part of its own, looking at you, Delaware, Cowan does not see great things to come for the territory. The debt that Trump tweeted about, it is indeed a burden. And less infrastructure means that the island will actually find itself less resistant to future natural disasters. And that's it for today's show. After listening to me in his headphones for nine hours a day, just producer Dan Schrader is hard of hearing. Just producer Mary Wilson is half past dead. No, wait, hold on, my watch stopped. It's like a quarter past dead. You know what? We missed it. Let's just let a week go by. She's about like a week, week and a half past dead. Give sufficient time for checking and boarding. Dead. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. But Stephen Lichtig is a dangerous man. The gist. 
Our jet black goatee and spray on hair in a can is mocked till dawn. Oopru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.